0: Welcome to the Weekend University podcast and this is your host Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this we organise lecture days once per month where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. In this episode, we're joined by Professor Paul Gilbert. Paul is the founder of Compassion-Focused Therapy and professor of clinical psychology at the University of Derby. He has researched evolutionary approaches to psychopathology for over 35 years, with a special focus on shame and the treatment of shame-based difficulties. He has written and edited 20 books and established the Compassionate Mind Foundation in 2006. This episode focuses on Paul's most recent book, Living Like Crazy, which was published earlier this year. In the interview, we discuss some of the key themes of the book, including the surprising effects our culture and environment can have on our mental health, how understanding the evolved nature of the human mind can make you more compassionate both towards yourself and others, How to Stop beating Yourself Up and Develop a More Compassionate Self, The Psychology of Archetypes, The Dangers of Inflation, and How to Avoid Being Manipulated by Charismatic Leaders, and Paul's Advice for Aspiring Psychologists. You can buy the book on Amazon and learn more about Paul's work at www.compassionatemind.co.uk. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Paul. To get started could you just tell us a bit more about your background and how you got into the field of psychology because i i know you were originally studying economics at university so how did you make that that change
1: well firstly thank you so much for inviting me to do this niles that's a wonderful thing that you're doing and you're doing some wonderful work down there in london so this is just great to be part of so um so background so actually i grew up in nigeria and went to an american missionary school for quite a while which is where I got a slight twang to my accent, because everybody asked me that. And um, then, actually, I always wanted to be a psychologist in the 60s, but in those days, psychology wasn't regarded as a particularly um, good profession, because there wasn't that many of us around. So I did economics, went to university and did economics, but I always wanted to be a psychologist. So when I'd finished my economics degree... I was even more clear about that because obviously economic behavior is generated by people making decisions and so on and uh, then i went to sussex and did what is called a changeover degree uh, in psychology so that uh, degree um, there's only two in the country i think where people who don't have psychology degrees can go and spend time there and change over so i did that and then after i'd finished that uh, i went to edinburgh and did a phd with Ivy Blackburn on um, cognitive therapy and depression, and then that was finished in 78. And uh, in 78, I went to Norwich and started uh, to train as a clinical psychologist. And then the rest, they say, is history. So that, that, that's my background, started off with economics. And that's interesting because one of the things economics does is help you build models. So. In your first year you do sort of you know the labor market terms of trade and so forth and then by the third year you're developing these complex interacting models of an economy that's how economics builds up their models was when you do psychology, it's not like that at all you do very separate courses in language or child development or social psychology so i was always very <laughs> interested in building models so that's um <clears throat> That's where I sort of get my interest in actually how does it all fit together? So a lot of the work I've done over the years is really trying to think about how the mind actually works as a system rather than these single bits and pieces and subunits and subprocesses.
0: So you think what you learned during your, your economics study actually benefited what you, what you learned later on in psychology?
1: Yes, it was a way of thinking so psychology uh, economics gave you a way of thinking systemically how does the terms of trade link to inflation link to money markets link to employment so you're always thinking in terms of the interacting processes right whereas when you came into psychology that is not how it was taught at all it was always all these very separate um, subject areas and there wasn't really much of an effort to understand how the mind works as a system with all these bits working together. And even now psychology is not great It's systemic thinking in terms of how it works, how the brain works as a system.
0: Okay. So you've just published a new book called living like crazy. All right. So I'd be curious to ask you, Paul, what would you say the central idea of this book, this book is?
1: Um, The central idea is that humans are an evolved species like all other species, and that the context in which we grow and develop has a huge impact on how our brains are and how we are with each other. And uh, we're basically quite a cooperative, sharing, caring species when we live in small hunter-gatherer groups. But with the advent of agriculture and increasing group size and increasing resources, Uh, The last uh, 5,000 years or whatever has not been terribly good for humanity I mean in some ways it's been great and we've got science and culture and so forth But in other ways, it's it's not been so good and the history of humanity since agriculture particularly in terms of wars and tribalism and so on and so on has been pretty awful Uh, and even now uh, we live in a world of have-nots and have lots and uh, that that's uh, th- this hierarchy this distribution of resources in such an unequal and unjust way is all the result of not really coming to terms with agriculture because we don't have a our brains are not really <laughs> designed to deal with surplus um we're really a caring sharing species and m- when we have the context that moves us out of that moves us into hierarchy and and keeping control over resources and so forth and we don't do so well So in in
0: 1995, you published a paper on the link between evolved biology and, and social culture, and how this should be the basis of clinical psychology. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about why you published this paper. And yeah, could you talk a bit more about that, please? Okay, so there are a number of things about that. One is that, um,
1: clinical psychology particularly in terms of psychotherapy uh, tended to move more and more towards focusing on individuals so cognitive therapy did great things but it tended to overfocus on the individual who had dis- uh, dysfunctional beliefs or uh, negative ways of thinking and so forth and the idea was that we do things to individuals and then everything is good that's a very medical model in some ways it's been very helpful to people but the evidence is actually we're a very social species. So we operate uh, for good or for, uh, for better or for worse in terms of our social environments. So we now know, for example, that the environment in which you grow up in can not only affect how your brain and body matures, uh, how your immune systems gets programmed, but it can even affect the genes that get turned on and off in you. Okay, so if you grow up in a very stressful environment, let's say abuse or neglect, then you're going to have different genes in your genome turned on and off than if you grow up in an environment that was caring and sharing. And so the the point is that humans are constantly adapting to their social niche right down to genetic expression. So it's really trying to focus or, or help psychology think about this issue about Uh, humans as socially contextualized beings and uh, That we have certain kinds of basic needs things like for belonging or to be cared about and cared for uh, For respect and so forth and that if humans don't get that uh, then they tend to suffer so the idea was really to to move away from thinking about the problems of mental health only as things have gone wrong inside individuals and try to Uh, a focus on the social or community dynamics of mental health, which is it's what happens to people. It's the context in which people grow that is largely responsible for a lot of the mental health problems that we have. Um, And that's why you find in some cultures quite low rates of mental health problems. For example, in some cultures, postnatal depression is very low, whereas in other cultures it's much higher. And that's all to do with the social context in which women are having children and are having to cope and so on and so on so the social context in which our minds mature develop and grow is really really important and and we're not doing anywhere near enough to address the the issue of prevention by trying to create uh, social cultures and communities that are supportive of the best in us rather than the us the towards mental health problems.
0: You've got a chapter in the book. I think it's titled "The Myth of the Autonomous Individual." Yeah. And where does that uh, where does that come from? Where does that myth come from? What's the origins of it?
1: Um, the origins of it are, are in. Um, competitiveness and capitalism, right? So capitalism is a competitive psychology primarily, and it needs people to think of themselves as individual units who are competing with other individual units for a slice of the action. So capitalist psychology, if there is such a thing, or competitive economics, uh, it really does focus on individuals as separate beings. Also, there is this um, long history of uh, uh certain types of religion which invites us to think of ourselves as separate souls that can do well or could do badly can go to heaven or can go to hell and as you probably know most religions that have that kind of way of thinking where people are uh either punished or rewarded that's really like religion as a as a police as a policing system. So if you do bad things, you go to hell, do good things, you go to heaven. And that also encourages people to think of themselves as individuals. Um, So those two things together, the way certain deities, religions, encourage us to think of us as as ourselves as individuals or individual souls um, is one thing, but also the, the capitalist psychology, which is you're as a competitive unit, you have to think of yourself as an individual that goes out there and uh, earns your money and, and so on.
0: Yeah. Okay, so Paul, now I want to talk a bit more about, about the archetypes. And could you maybe just start with talking about how Jung's idea of the archetypes had an influence on your own thinking? And then maybe we could talk about the yeah. social archetypes. And- so,
1: just to finish off the last question, but so the, the reason that's a myth is because of the discussion we had just previous to that, which is that actually so much of what we are, what we feel, how our brains work, how our bodies work is socially contextualized. We're not separate individuals at all. We are highly integrated information flow. So information flow is moving between us all the time. And that information flow is having a major impact on our mental state. So when, you know, if people around you are nice and supportive and kind to you, then your mental state will be reasonably good. Whereas if people are critical and hostile and not very pleasant, (laughs) your mental state won't be very good. So the idea that we're these autonomous individuals and it's all to do with what we think and what we do, that is the myth. So now to come on to the issue of the uh, archetypes. So archetypes are interesting because there's a long tradition going back to Kant and even Plato, which is this, that the mind comes with ready-made meaning-making systems Okay, so the idea, basically, is that there are these what are called archetypes. And archetypes are basically ways of making meaning out of stimuli. Okay, so, for example, let's think, we can think of an example. Supposing that you, you think of the um, persona archetype. Uh, actually, no, that's not, that's not a very good example to start with. Let's think of, um, say, the, the uh, masculine archetype or the amorous archetype. That relates to basic concepts of maleness in a way, the archetype of maleness. And you can have both a, you know, both a female can have a, an aminous part to themselves and so on, or the hero. So that relates to this innate tendency for us to need to go out into the world, to discover the world, the courage of, you know, doing things, taking risks, and in a way becoming our own life hero then you have heroes who become heroes in communities and they become individuals who do things to save or rescue or help uh, communities and so forth. So the idea of an archetype without these uh, prepared innate systems for creating meaning. Okay. Cause without them, everything would be tricky. If we didn't have a, a system for creating meaning, it would be difficult. So um, if I think of an evolutionary example, if we had to, learn everything that was frightening, uh, we probably would be um, dead before we got to the end of the list. So we automatically know that some things are frightening. So like a loud noise is frightening, okay, or to hear the roar of or a fast moving uh, object can be frightening, or things crawling on the ground can be frightening. So we, we kind of already have a sort of a preparedness to learn uh, things that can be frightening and that gives us an advantage because then we learn to avoid them pretty quickly But if we had to be bitten by snakes before we realized they were dangerous, uh, that probably wouldn't be such a good idea. So uh, <clears throat> We have these prepared uh, Systems which allow us to learn things quite quickly. So archetypes really are like these prepared systems We learn things quite quickly uh, because our mind is um, prepared to do it like language right we can learn language quite quickly because we have a biological system for learning language so language learning would be a, an example of an archetypal system now Jung talks about archetypes in terms of how they help us and guide us through life so he would suggest that early in life the hero archetype is quite important the mother archetype is quite important so the mother archetype means that, you know, as a child, you are orientated to form a relationship with a parenting figure, preferably a mother figure, and how you experience that mother figure has an impact on how you grow. But the, the innate orientation towards a mother figure is biologically programmed in, right? And then the hero archetype is the process of personal development as you become the author of your own life. So that's biologically pro- plumbed in. So as you grow, these desires and needs will start to grow with you. So eventually that you move away from the mother towards your peer group and then from your peer group into finding, you know, a sexual mate and having your own family. So that is your heroic journey through life of you taking on the challenges of life. And then you have the, you know, the persona, which is the archetype of wanting to uh, exist in the social world in such a way that people accept you rather than reject you. So this is your, the face that you present the world. Persona is the mask that you present the world. So we have two types of lives. We have a private and a public life. So many of the things that go on inside of our minds, for example, we wouldn't necessarily share with other people. Uh, So the persona is that which you want other people to see. Then what sits behind the persona is the shadow. The shadow is that which you don't want other people to see and maybe even you don't want to see. So these are the potentials within us that are darker. So we want to see ourselves as a loving person. We do not want to see ourselves as a hating person. So Jung argued that what would happen if you became frightened of your shadow, you would suppress it. So you, don't, you, you keep out of touch with your own potential to be hating. Um, and part of what psychotherapy does is to help people recognize that We all have these potentials and sometimes we have to be able to work with these things that we'd rather not. Now, this is particularly important if it comes to depression because some depressed people, by no means all, but some depressed people are very anxious about their anger and their rage. So they don't want to acknowledge that, so they suppress it. And so part of what you're doing in therapy is to help people recognize that they have a, a raging component to them so that they recognize their shadow the thing they've kept hidden from themselves if you wish so i'm very interested in this because i think otherwise psychology can become very two-dimensional it can become very black and white there's no texture there's no color okay if we don't understand the innate mechanisms that texture and color life and orientate us towards certain goals towards Friendships towards sexuality towards attachment towards belonging. These are all archetypal themes within us right and how they unfold through life and how the environment supports those unfolding Archetypal processes is very important for how we turn
0: out Okay, so could you talk maybe a bit about now how these archetypes can become inflated and the dangers of when this happens like for example, if someone has an inflated hero archetype, the, the negative effects that can have, have on their life?
1: Yeah, so the negative, the, it's a great question because, um, so an inflated hero type means you've got to succeed, okay? You've got to do well, you've got to do well, you have to succeed. So you drive, strive, drive and strive all the time and with a real fear of failing. So these individuals really, um, they turn up in sports and uh and uh, in, in, you know work, they can become workaholics and so forth. Now there's nothing wrong with with drive and strive, but if they if it becomes inflated, then it becomes out of balance. And so the idea is that this archetype runs that person's life, and they don't develop other aspects. They're not having a balanced life because they're so dominated by this need to do well and excel and and so forth. If you have an inflated persona. That means that you do everything to win approval. You're very worried about not being approved. So everything that you do is to be approved of by others. And uh, the problem with an overinflated persona is that sometimes people will do things to be accepted and to be liked, which are immoral. Okay, so when we have a fear of not being accepted and we overly push the need for approval, that would be called a persona inflation. Uh, persona deflation is the opposite. where you don't you don't care at all what people think about you, and you just uh, you're completely a <laughs> good troll because you you have no interest in what people think. If they don't like you, you don't care. You know, if they criticize you, you don't care. So that is more on the psychopathic dimension of things, where you really doesn't bother you what people think. Um, so the point is, in all of the archetypal systems, they're there for a reason, and they they need to be balanced. And the process of individuation is learning how to experience the archetypes to use them appropriately for them never to become inflated and too dominant nor deflated and not useful and that process of learning how to live through experience and mature the different archetypes leads to what jung called individuation where individuals begin to have an integrated sense of themselves as a person with all these different potentials so When you integrate, you can realize that there's a part of me that can be very loving and caring, but there's also a part of me that could be uh, very destructive. Say, if somebody harmed my children, I could experience vengeance. There's a part of me that could experience great grief if, say, one of my children died. There's a part of me that can feel great joy uh, in the love of my children. So I begin to realize that I'm a, a mixed being of multiple feelings, multiple motives, multiple things going on inside of me and part of what I'm trying to do is just to balance them all, rather than push some, just be with some and push others away because I, like, I don't like those feelings, push them away. You see, So there's a part of me that can be joyful and excited, but there's also the potential within me to be depressed, okay? There's a part of me that wants to live life, but I also have the potential to want to kill myself, not live life. So these are these complex patterns of potentials that exist within us.
0: So these archetypes or motivational systems but have the potential to, to almost take us over to a certain extent and take over our behavior. And yeah, and there's been charismatic leaders throughout history who have not known this, but they've sort of, they've spoke to the archetypal in us and people have been driven to do things that are crazy almost. So my question is, how do people recognize whenever the archetypal in them is being inflated and being appealed to, and how do they not be taken over whenever, whenever it's happening? Well,
1: that's a fabulous question because that's the name of the game, actually. I mean, that's, the, that's what Jung said um, uh, often, that most of us are sleepwalking through life with the archetypes or the innate mechanisms or whatever running the show, okay? So, and again, this is the same with a lot of the Buddhist traditions that most of us are not that aware of what's happening in our minds. We just act on, so if somebody makes us angry, so we just think angry thoughts and want to do angry things, or something makes us anxious, so we just, whatever. So the point is that people are not that aware that firstly, they can observe the mind, and secondly, they don't have to act on what is stimulated within them, okay? They, they can resist <laughs> uh, what is stimulated within them. So even though they feel vengeful, they don't need to be vengeful, act vengefully. So that's the first issue of helping people to become more aware. Now, charismatic leaders move you in the opposite direction. They don't want you to be aware of what is being stimulated in your mind. They wanna go direct to stimulating it. So charismatic leaders must, of course, stimulate a desire to follow, to pay attention. Because if they don't stimulate that in their audience, then their audience is gonna lose interest straight away. So now, how can I get people to pay attention? Well, I have to stimulate some kind of emotional system in them that is powerful. So it's no good me stimulating a weak emotional system. I have to stimulate a powerful emotional system. What is the most powerful emotional system I can stimulate? Ah, I've actually got two, two big ones. One is fear and the other one is superiority. And I can use either of those two to um, stimulate strong emotions in my audience so they will follow me. So what charismatic leaders do, like Hitler and all these people, they will stimulate fear that we're going to be, I don't know, overrun by the other group or we're going to be taken over or we've, uh, something bad will happen unless we take action immediately. We need to do something now, and I'm the person to do it. I will defend you. I will protect you because there's all these things that can happen. There's the Mexicans. <laughs> they always blame the Mexicans. So fear is a big one, and a lot of the politics right now is the politics of fear, right? That's stimulating a lot of anxieties, and a lot of the culture we live in is all anxiety-provoking. We live in an anxiety-provoking culture, really. You know, a lot of our competitive programs now are not celebrating winners, but spending weeks and weeks where we pay attention to the people we're going to check out of the program. You know, Who are we going to get rid of this week? It's pretty horrible stuff, really. Um, so So the next one, the next big one then, <clears throat> is uh, power and um, superiority. Now, if you follow me, I will make you great. If you follow me, we will win this. If you follow me, we will reclaim our glory. I mean, if you look at what Trump's doing in America, it's all about, I will make America great again. Now, so <laughs> nobody... <laughs> No, no leader is going to say, "I'm going to make, I'm going to make our country average. We're just going to be one like everybody else, and we're going to, you know, share like everybody else, and we're going to cooperate like everybody else. We're just going to be like everybody else." No, no leader gets elected if they say that. So every leader has to have the fear. There's a fear. You need me to protect you. That sort of thing, and you need me because I will do great things for you I'll do good things for you. I'll get your jobs, I'll make the country great, I'll I'll defend the borders against these people, whatever it is. So those are the two big ones. And they're very powerful in humans and uh, leaders know how to trigger those strong emotions.
0: Yeah. So Paul, now I wanna talk about the evolved nature of, of the human mind. And how by increasing our understanding of how our minds evolved, it can make us more compassionate both towards ourselves and towards the people in our lives too. Okay,
1: so that's a great question. So the key thing really is we talk about not your fault. I mean, a lot of the people who come through to mental health services, people I've seen over 40 years really, will have a strong sense that there's something wrong with them. You know, that they're, they're weak of character or they made mistakes or it's their fault they were traumatized or whatever it is. Uh, most people we see don't have a really robust, good sense of self. They they don't like themselves, or they're critical, or whatever it is. So this is really interesting, and to some extent, what happens is people have what we call a fusion with the archetypal, or a fusion with the biological. So the first stage then is helping people realize, look, your brain was built by your genes. You've got two arms, two legs, Um, you've got eyes and ears all of this has been built for you not by you you didn't build anything to do with your physical body you didn't build anything you just kind of inhabit it it's there you know it grows around you right and the same for your brain right the things that are going on in your brain your archetypal form your desire to be loved to, to belong Uh, to be respected, to have status, to have sex, to have children, all of these things, they're biologically built for you because you are built to survive and reproduce. That's the thing all species need to do. So you have biological mechanisms, emotions, and motives that are designed to help you do that. Now, you didn't build those. They've been built for you. So when you begin to feel anxious or depressed or angry, that's because you've got systems in your brain that have been built for you not by you firing off. So you're experiencing patterns of activity in your brain, some of which you may not want at all, but it's not your fault, right? It's it's not your fault you have these experiences because they've been built for you, (laughs) because you are a species like all other species. You've been built by your genes, and the environments in which you have grown up will influence how that brain has matured. So if I had been kidnapped as a three day old baby into a violent drug gang and I'd seen violence and I'd had violence done to me, this version of Paul Gilbert talking to you would not exist at all. Uh, 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 Probably quite a violent version of me would exist. And if the two versions could meet, you know, Professor Paul Gilbert and drug Baron Paul Gilbert, (laughs) the chances are they wouldn't like each other very much. Um, so even the two versions of me might not get on. So the question is, well, so whose fault's that then? Well, it's nobody's fault, it's not my fault. I didn't choose to have the environment I had and I wouldn't have chosen to be kidnapped as a three day old baby. So when we pull back and we realize that we are genetically created with emotions and motivations that we never chose, we're socially structured in a way that we never chose, we realize that so much of what goes on in our head is absolutely not our fault. The issue is, however, it is our responsibility. So if I have, say, a vulnerability to cancer, then it's probably a good idea I don't smoke. It's not my fault I got that vulnerability, but if I behave in this way, I will have trouble. So responsibility then is, I didn't choose the brain I have, but i can learn to understand it and i can learn to be responsible as best as i can for how i act in the world and the values i adopt in the world there are some things i can choose and i'm going to work on those things so my responsibility is even though it's not my thought i am what i am i'm going to start to take responsibility to train my mind to be the way that I want it to be, which, of course, for us in Compassion Folks Therapy is to train your mind in the way of compassion, to become a person who is helpful, not hurtful. That's That's the basic motto. So it's not my fault I have these orientations towards anxiety or anger, but it is my responsibility to try as best I can to work with them so that they don't cause me or other people harm. Now this is important because <laughs> it's the same in physical things like we have discovered that, you know, going to the loo um, is a problem because it carries diseases. So uh, for for much of our, um, uh, for much of history, people just used to go to the loo in the streets and so forth and so on. And that was regarded as a particularly very natural behavior. But now we have learned that We go to the loo in a particular kind of way. and We wash our hands afterwards because we don't want to spread diseases. And I think most people now kind of do that because they take responsibility for that function of the body. Now, what we need to help people do is to say, you can also learn. It's not your fault you have to shit. It's not your fault that your shit carries diseases. That's not your fault. But it is your responsibility to try to shit hygienically. And so we say the same thing. It's not your fault your brain carries all this stuff. But it is human's responsibility, they need to sort it out, which we're not at the moment. So people are not taking responsibility for how their minds are. And as, a res- uh, and as a consequence, they're doing a lot of harmful things. So the idea is that when we learn to see it's not our fault that we have it, but it is absolutely our responsibility to try and do things that are not harmful to ourselves and others, then that becomes absolutely central.
0: Okay. Okay. It almost seems that within the human mind there is great potential for great evil but also great compassion and great good and the things the emotions we have like anxiety anger these things just happen by default, but it seems that things like compassion have to be cultivated in the same way that we like would have we would cultivate a garden yes so my question is how can people practically cultivate more compassion in their lives and make it part of almost a habit, I suppose?
1: Well, it's brilliant. It's a great question because you see, most evil, not all of it by any means, but a lot of evil is threat-based. Um, threat and vengeance, those are the two big ones. So if you look at, say, war, so Rihanna, Bosnia, whatever it is, the people suddenly feel very threatened by the other person or they feel the other person has caused them harm in some way and that releases some very bad, uh, psychology indeed. Vengeance psychology is, is nasty, nasty psychology. And once you get into a war situation, the, the moment one of your troops are killed, you're immediately into vengeance, right? So that's a very nasty psychology indeed. And the history of humanity is is pretty awful. I mean, you can think about um, the Assyrians and the, the Romans, the Roman games, you know. Uh, and we're seeing this kind of entertainment on things like... Uh, Game of Thrones and so forth, where there is actually an enjoyment of watching other people suffer and be killed and so forth. So you're quite right, the human brain is potentially very nasty. And the last 5,000 years, we've seen some pretty terrible stuff. I mean, humans are pretty awful, really, actually. They can be some awful things. But, and that's something that you give to anybody. You can express your anger and rage and, and hurt anybody Uh, once they've shown some disposition to be a threat to you. Compassion, on the other hand, is a bit more tricky, partly because it starts off as bounded. In other words, we tend to be much more compassionate to the people we know and like than the strangers, whereas we find it much easier to be vengeful and unpleasant to strangers than we do to people (laughs) like. So there's an inversion. There's an inversion of of the boundary. (laughs) So (laughs) the evil is all that way. This compassion is with to the group to one's family and so on and so on so what you have to do with compassion then is to move beyond the boundaries right uh, so beginning to recognize that compassion um, is a process of taking an interest in the well-being of others and in particular their suffering with the desire to alleviate and prevent it if you can now that's very clear in terms of Parent-child. I mean, that's what the parent's doing all the time, is trying to prevent the child from coming to harm, so making sure the child is fed and doesn't starve and is warm and doesn't freeze and, uh, and is protected from dangers and so forth. So this compassion, this caring psychology to be sensitive to suffering and try to alleviate and prevent it is fundamental to caring. There's, there's a lot more to parenting than that, but compassion is one key thing. And what turns caring into compassion is when we use our new brain competencies for insight, awareness, and thinking. So we can think about, we can predict, we can take action to uh, prevent in ways that other animals can't. Their caring tends to be automatic, whereas others can be thoughtful and so forth. So this is very, very important. So one of the things then is beginning to think carefully and empathically, even though I have anxiety or this or that or anger, is my behavior gonna be hurtful or harmful? So when I'm critical of myself and I'm calling myself names or beating myself up, am I being helpful or harmful? That criteria of caring, okay, so to to be helpful, not harmful or hurtful, is, is fundamental and it really does help people realize that sometimes we do things to ourselves and others that are quite harmful, and quite hurtful. So compassion is indeed something that people need to work on. Firstly, by being aware of suffering, being aware of the need to address suffering, and also being aware that we can be causes of it very, very easily. It's We tend not to want to be causes of it to people we know and people we like, but it's very easy to have an interest in causing suffering to people we don't know, or people who are threats, or people we don't like. So compassion then is cultivated to the extent that we practice extending it beyond our immediate friendships. And we try to focus on the idea that whoever I'm with, uh, may my behavior be helpful, not harmful. Can, Can I extend it beyond its natural boundaries? Um, so you do need to cultivate it. And it's a little bit like fitness, you know, all of us have got a basic fitness, and uh, that's fine. But if you go to the gym on a regular basis, then you can become really fit and will feel even better. So we have a basic compassion and we do, but if you practice and you train it, then this will change your brain, it affects your frontal cortex and vagus nerve and various other things. So it changes you physiologically but it'll also extend your capacity for thinking about and behaving compassionately in the wider world beyond your immediate friends and family.
0: So we should be doing a daily compassion workout in other words. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, Paul, now I want to talk about uh, the two different types of social structures that you mentioned in the book. I think one was agonic or agonic and uh, hedonic. And, the different effects these have on the psychology of the the group's members.
1: Okay, so this is a a term, these are terms coined by the late primatologist uh, Michael Chance, who was a reader at Birmingham University, who was a member of an evolutionary discussion group in the 80s that I was part of. So Michael wrote a book called The Fabrics, Social Fabrics of the Mind. But he noted in certain primate groups that some of them tended to be quite relaxed and friendly and, um, and uh, uh, socially engaged. In, whereas other groups tend to be more tense and distance, they, have, they kept distances from each other, they were more segregated, they were more attentive to the social rank hierarchy and so on. So his idea was that um, hedonic relationships and hedonic groups are groups where individuals feel safe with each other and they communicate with each other to be jointly supportive and sharing of the group uh, the activities of the group and they're very interested in uh, in bonding and mutual supporting basically so this hedonic so people feel basically safe with each other this concept of social safeness which is a concept we use a lot the agonic however is regarded as a social structure where individuals are watching their place, that a threat is never far away, particularly downrank threat. It's not only downrank threat, but it tends to be downrank threat. Um, And so individuals are wary of each other. They're distrustful of each other. Um, They sometimes stab each other in the back. I mean, you see it very much on The Apprentice. If you watch The Apprentice, you can see this kind of behavior. They're all trying to please the dominant male and all that stuff. So there, the orientation is towards conflict or the suppression of conflict. Um, so the, the agonic has this, this, uh, the, the, the group is stable, provided everybody knows their place and conflict is kept in check primarily by threat. Uh, and Michael's point was that actually quite a lot of groups are like that, where people are kept in place because of threat. So, you know, I think he would give an example of the Old and New Testament. You know, the Old Testament was clearly an agonic religion where if you upset God, you're in the shit, basically. Whereas New Testament was that God loves everybody and it's uh, and we're all, you know, as long as we do the right things, you can all go to heaven. So <clears throat> this idea about how threat is used in the system is very, very important and who uses it and how it is used makes this distinction between whether it's a threat based group or an open explorative
0: safe group. Right, okay. Now we in the past we lived in these small groups of up to about, up to about 150 people maximum. Yeah. Now we live in these massive these massive societies with millions millions of people. Is it practical to have a hedonic way of being in that with that scale of society? Well, that's a great
1: question. The point about it is, I think this is where you come to, uh, how can we feel socially safe with each other? Now, in some ways, we are quite extraordinary. I mean, if you go to London and go on the tubes, uh, for the most part, I mean, we can... You know, animals would never survive the kind of crafting things that we do, but we all understand that we respect each other's space as best we can. We try not to bump into each other as best we can. We're very, very respectful in in some ways. So I think there are ways in which we can have social respect. Now, social respect is very important, I think, in terms of creating a sense of safeness. Interestingly enough, having the rule of law is very important for sense of safeness. And in big groups, uh, the, uh, good policing is important for safeness because you feel uh, okay, right? Now, so we can make a distinction between two things. One is called safety and one is called safeness, right? So safety is where we pay attention to stop threats from arising. So we're, we're interested in the prevention of threat. So we know what, can threaten us, so we try and prevent it. Now that's very important. I mean, if you get into your car, the first thing you do is you put on your your seatbelt, that's for safety, right? And you check your gears and everything. You get your cars MOT'd and have to make sure that they're working, the brakes are working. Those are all safety behaviors and they're very important because uh, otherwise you can, you know, obviously uh, harmful things can happen. But once you've done that, once safety is done, then you're free to explore. You can go and drive and enjoy driving. You're not constantly thinking about your safety belt and all that stuff anymore. So once your safety systems are sorted and you've created the context for, then you can feel safe. And once you feel safe, your mind is no longer on the potential threats. Your now mind is now talking to your friend, just driving, enjoying the drive. So your mind goes into a different position. If you stay in safety system though, you would be constantly thinking about the things that could go wrong and it, is your belt okay and what's that sound in the engine and oh, i haven't had my brakes so your mind would be full of kind of things that you've got to watch out for all right so it's the same really in terms of the ergonic and hedonic mode how do we create conditions where we pay, pay attention to safety and then we can just relax and get on with things and and be okay with things so you're not necessarily going to create close relationships with people, but can we create environments where people feel socially safe? So that's a really great question. Um, So they're not thinking about safety because that's all been taken care of. So what we do know is that having uh, systems where people feel they can trust their legal system is very important. Uh, Having systems where they have freedom of speech is very important. Having the police force that they trust is very important. So all all these things are, really important for creating safety, that they're there to take care to make sure bad things don't happen. Once that happens now, I don't need to worry about any of that. And now I'm free to. So in in agonic groups, however, people don't actually feel that safe. Um, And that's why in certain environments, environments of poverty and so forth, the the environment feels very fractured. It doesn't feel very safe. Uh, Particularly if the police, for example, are not very effective at dealing with drug gangs or whatever it is. So, um, <clears throat> the hedonic potential is there, provided people feel safe, okay, so you create a safety for them, so, so they're now free to think, and create an opportunity for them to, to create cooperative environments. So, these are things that people enjoy. So, for example, in Paris in the, you know, in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s, it was very much a cafe environment where people could sit out and... And you could just drop in on any conversation and you create this social, a sense of a social milieu of people interacting and being friendly. What's somewhat got in the way of that now, of course, is things like mobile phones and so on, where we're having far less uh, face-to-face conversations and and so on. And that is a worry, actually. and There's increasing concerns that we're not really creating friendly relations with, with people around us because we're too busy. Uh, just (laughs) texting people. So we're not hearing the voice tones and seeing the facial expressions. And it's voice tones and facial expressions that influence the amygdala, the brain, to give you the feeling of safeness, right? So so when people smile at you and they have a friendly voice, whereas if you're only reading something, you can't get those signals.
0: Okay. And so obviously the social structures that we're a part of have the potential to bring out the best in us and also the worst in us as well. Um, yes. Have you used any of these ideas to to create a culture at the Compassionate Mind Foundation that that works better together? I suppose.
1: Yes, I think the most important thing um, at the foundation. I mean, you'd have to ask them because they'd probably tell you, "Oh, he's a terrible, it's <laughs> a terrible boss." But what we're trying to do is <coughs> create it uh, in the foundation create opportunities for people to explore their work in the way that they want to. So there's clarity about what, they're, what we're needing to achieve. And then we try to help people to um, explore their roles in the way that, you know, it's seen it in, for them to develop it in the way that they want to. Now we don't have that many people and some of them are um, part-time and we've just had a change of personnel. But that's the general idea of of how we try and do things in the foundation. So people feel feel safe. So a good environment is where people feel safe, right? So you've got policies, things like policies for bullying. So they're not gonna be bullied, Or if they are bullied, they know what they can do about it. You have policies for where people can feel appreciated and can contribute to the department or the work. So they're not just here doing mechanical things and nobody cares about how they do it or what they do. So they feel they can make a contribution. So <clears throat> feel safe and safety is okay. They're gonna be bullied is okay. They're being valued, they're being included. And the, the environment is creating a sense of inclusion and belonging as best you're able. So those things are extremely important for creating hedonic working environments.
0: Right, okay. Uh, Paul, have you got any advice for someone listening to this that has a real tendency to to beat themselves up and has that sort of voice in their head that's always putting, putting themselves down and, yeah, just not, not very kind to themselves?
1: Yeah, so, um, yeah, so self credit Firstly, it's always worth thinking about what, why are you doing that, right? So it may well be because I'm disappointed or I feel I could have done better or whatever it is. That can be one reason or it could be that people just don't like themselves or whatever it is. So the first thing is thinking carefully about, so what is this about? Why would I do this? You know, would I, the things I say to myself, would I say them to somebody else? Would they say them to a good friend? Now, if the answer is no, like I call myself, um, you know, an effing idiot or stupid or whatever it is, but I wouldn't actually say that to anybody else. Why wouldn't you? Well, you, because it would be very hurtful. So, okay, so you know it would be hurtful. You know it's hurtful if you do that to somebody else. So why don't you think it's hurtful to you? Because it is. Because if we put you in a brain scanner and let you go and be critical to yourself, all of those threat systems in your brain start lighting up like a Christmas tree. The people are hostile when they're being critical to themselves. They're, doing, they're not doing their brains any good. So that's the first thing. The second thing is recognizing that if you just step back from your critic and really listen to what it says and really see what it feels about you, you realize that your critical process can say some pretty harsh, horrible things. And the feelings that you have, the critic has towards you, is often anger or contempt or whatever. So you begin to see that actually hmm, I thought this criticism was helpful, but actually, it's deeply undermining. It's not that helpful at all. All right, so that's the first thing, recognizing, okay, that through no fault of your own, remember, you didn't choose it, you you probably didn't realize, but actually it's pretty harmful, self criticism of this type is very harmful. So what to do? Hmm, okay. Then we teach people how to create a compassionate self. Imagine a part of you, that really cares about you and wants to see you flourish and do well, okay? So you're talking to a child to to encourage them and help them and support them. How would you talk to them? What would you feel for them? And that's the view to take of of yourself. So we call this compassionate self-correction. In other words, all of us will make mistakes. All of us will be disappointed by some of the things. All of us will do things that we regret. That's just the way humans are. You aren't gonna avoid that but we can treat ourselves with compassion by recognizing that, okay, that was disappointing behavior or that was a thought that's probably not a terribly nice thought to have <laughs> or whatever it is, but then just to be compassionate with that, right? Okay, so I'd like to change that. Let me just think I'm gonna change it, right? So I'd like to change this. Let's think how I could change it. So <clears throat> imagine somebody battling with an alcohol problem, right? So you could, uh, you, you haven't drank for a little bit, and then suddenly you go to a party and you start drinking again. So if you're critical, you're gonna say the stupid, blah, blah, you know, attack, 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 and eventually you feel so terrible, you just start drinking now <laughs> <You help laughs> to stop feeling bad, right? Because you feel shit. Uh, you feel you're useless and a failure. But supposing, you had a compassionate part of you that was able to say, look, you know, okay, so we kind of lost a couple of days here. You've gone back to drinking again, but look what you did before. Wasn't that amazing? You had a couple of weeks off. And yeah, it is disappointing you've done that. But uh, week, you, you've shown that you can get off to drinking. Let's have another go and, and have another go. Because it is very difficult, you know. It's not your fault you're addicted to drinking. It's to do with your genes. And the fact that there are these things called grapes in the world and they make rather lovely wines so it's absolutely not your fault um but we do need to kind of move on from here if we can because the drinking isn't doing you any good you're losing money and you know you tend to get a bit aggressive when you drink so let's see if we can have another go so the key thing then is with compassionate self-correction it's a genuine desire to change right but it's a genuine desire to use encouragement, support, understanding, guidance to change, rather than just, you're stupid, you're no good, you're rubbish. That kind of criticism will make you worse. I mean, you're you're much less likely to be able to achieve your goals if you do that. Whereas if you're honest about a problem, if you've got a problem, and then just try to encourage yourself, support yourself as you would a good friend, particularly when you struggle, because that's when compassion is important. Compassion is important in the hard times, not the easy times. Um, then that will help you get through.
0: Right. Okay. Uh, Paul, have you got any advice for any young psychologist about to begin a, a, a career or a degree in psychology? What would, what would you say to someone in that situation? Well, I think firstly, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I think psychology, I've been,
1: I feel greatly privileged because I've been able to do something I absolutely loved. I've loved being a psychologist. The, the opportunity to study the mind and, and humanity and so forth, the making contribution maybe to you know how we can change is just great. So the first thing is come into psychology with an enthusiasm to understand humans, right? You need a basic curiosity, okay. Um, So if you're fascinated about the mind and if you realize that all of the problems we have in the world are not to do with our resources, they're to do with our minds, (laughs) because, and our minds with how we live with each other, you know, how we fight, how we conflict, why we don't share, all that stuff. So the problem with the human mind is the problem for humanity, that's the problem, not not having more technology, I'm not against technology, I think they're, they're great, of course we do need them, but The biggest issue is humans do not know how to live together since agriculture. (laughs) Uh, How to create industries that don't cause harm. I mean, can you imagine if you get all industries, all businesses to adopt the single premise may I be helpful, not harmful. May what I produce be helpful to humanity, not harmful to humanity. May my company be helpful not harmful not hide their tax not cheat not cover up not do this you see so if we can get humans to change the way they think in all contexts to be helpful not to be harmful that would change the world but it's a massive issue right how are you going to do it so the key thing is great privilege to study psychology it's a, it's a wonderful profession take a basic curiosity and think about if i'm going to be a psychologist how would I like what I learned to be a benefit to others? <clears throat> and I think that's, if you come in with that idea, it's, it's psychology will be a wonderful um, profession. It's very competitive, unfortunately, particularly when you, if you want to get into clinical and educational, which is a little bit unfortunate. But this idea about how do I use my knowledge to benefit others, I think is uh, the whole point of coming into psychology. That's 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 what you're coming in to do, to understand the minds in order to, help people with their minds
0: hundred percent uh that leads well into the next question i suppose but what books have you recommended uh other people read the most would you say throughout your life what which, what books have had the biggest influence on your own thinking
1: Ah, oh, that's interesting so um <clears throat> on my personal thinking that takes me back so uh w- when I was very young, I used to read a little bit on Jung and also an author called Herman Hess, who was an author in the 40s, yeah, in the 40s primarily, um, who writes a lot about archetypal, he's a novelist, writes a lot about archetypal stuff. So he was very influential and really got me more heavily into Jung, really. And then I read quite a bit of Jung, particularly Dreams, Memories, and Reflections, his autobiography. Um, and then a very uh, book that really affected me as a psychologist was uh, Henry Ellenberger's book the discovery of the unconscious um, which is quite a thick book but it's written like a beautiful history book and it's about the history of dynamic psychology really all the way through from the 17th century well actually even before that through mesmer and, and how the ideas of the unconscious and Psycho uh, very psychological mental health problems and emerged and Freud and Jung and Adler and so on and so on So I, I I loved all that stuff. That was fantastic. I was always very also very influenced by um, Yalom's book in 1980 called existential psychotherapy which I thought was a wonderful book again. He's a brilliant writer. I, I love his stuff and Then moving on um, reading various evolutionary books people like David Buss. I was, very, uh, I was very interested in his work. Anthony Stevens, who was a Jungian psychologist, wrote a wonderful book called The History of the Self, um, Archetypes, called Archetype, of History of the Self. Um, <clears throat> so that was a very influential book on me. And then um, people like Randy Ness, uh, who wrote a book on evolutionary approaches to medicine. So quite a few, Really? Um, and uh, lots that I'm reading at the moment, a uh, wonderful book by John Barra called Before You Know It, which is a, a wonderful book about unconscious processing. And the other book I'm reading, I have read, which I thought was brilliant, was Robert Sapolsky's book called Behave, which is a lovely book. So um, quite a book. So, yeah. So quite a few, Rick. Really. <laughs>
0: Thanks for sharing, Paul. Uh, just a couple more questions now what's what's the best advice you think you've ever received
1: um that's the best advice i've ever received um i'm not sure really i suppose um i suppose something like why not give it a try or what have you got to lose okay Um, that's i mean that's sort of when you're thinking about things like when i was thinking of changing from econ- economics to psychology that was the advice somebody gave me said well what difference does it make what have you got to lose you know what give what what happens if you give it a try and it doesn't work out what have you lost right and really this idea about don't pre-decide things you know have a go have a go have a go i think that was really quite uh, for me really quite quite useful advice at the time. And it doesn't sound very, (laughs) but in the context in which this idea was said about, and the other piece of advice was from a rational emotive therapist, which was WFT, which is what the fuck and what the fuck means. If I've tried and it hasn't worked out, what the fuck? Okay. And you just have to let go and have a smile and say, so what the fuck? So sometimes when you're really struggling, you just have to let go and say, so what the fuck, I've done my best, I can't do my best. And just let go. So those two things, don't hold on to things, don't ruminate about things aren't working for you. Do your best for sure and then let go. And the other thing is, have a go. What have you got to lose? And uh, because sometimes we are, it's because we're so frightened of losing that we won't try. And remember, every decision is also a death. And learning to come to terms with death is very, very important, okay? And recognizing that we can only live one path. So what that means is if you go to the restaurant and there's a wonderful steak, the fish looks pretty cool, the chicken, now the chicken, now that looks kind of interesting. The moment you've made your choice, all the other choices die to you. You're not going to have them. So you're not going to have that experience. You've chosen not to have that experience. You're going to go with the fish. So you'll never know what the steak was like, right? So this is the point that if we hold on, if we're always frightened of making the wrong decision, the wrong decision, we start gripping life like that. Maybe when the fish comes, it tastes terrible. (laughs) You think, shit, I should have had the steak. The idea is, But that was the decision you went with just let it go and move on okay so this is these are very important things because if we keep regretting our decisions then again that can really be quite harmful to us but we have to accept okay well i made what i thought was a good decision at the time turned out not to be so what i need to do now is to try and get back on course or correct it as best i can because i can't change it but what you don't want to do is go for you know beating yourself up oh you stupid person why did you choose that fish you should have chosen a fish <laughs> then you get into a terrible mess so this is really quite important
0: yeah uh that's great advice paul uh what does the future look like for the next few years are you working on any new books or
1: yes we are working on um, new books and uh, we're going to um I, i'm wanting to try to 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 work on helping people think about the nature of life is quite a struggle, you know, I mean, we, here we are, we're born, we live for, you know, 25,000 days, whatever it is, and along the way, things can be very tough and very difficult for us. Um, And try to help people move out of this individualized focusing in one's head towards more of a community-based way of living. And with this basic compassion principle, of to try to live to be helpful, not hurtful or harmful. Very simple, very simple. We've got the compassion down to that, very simple, straightforward uh, focus. So uh, we're we're doing quite a lot of work on a therapeutic manual for compassion-focused therapy. And we're also doing quite a lot of research on compassion-focused therapy. For example, we've done a big study looking at kindness versus compassion, showing they're quite different concepts. I've got a professorship at the University of Queensland in Brisbane. So I spend some of the winter months there. Again, we have some PhD students. We're looking at, we're doing brain studies, seeing what happens in people's brains when they're critical and when they're compassionate. Um, so we've got, you know, we've
0: got quite a lot on actually. Wow, okay, busy. And Paul, where can, where can people find you online and where can people buy the book?
1: Yes, yeah, so the Living Like Crazy book, uh, you can buy it at Amazon. It says there's only one available, but don't believe them. There's loads available. You can... You can buy them on Amazon, and uh, you can order them through any bookshop as well. Um, <clears throat> uh, and if you're interested in getting to see the uh, uh, foundation more, it's www mind one word dot co dot uk. So come there, and you'll see our website. And there's lots of talks and and exercises and breathing exercises for. Uh, developing compassion and compassion exercises so you'll have a lot of fun on the website
0: thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed the show don't forget that you can win a three-month pass worth 150 pounds to the weekend university if you subscribe and leave a review on itunes and if you're interested in keeping up to date with new psychology lectures and upcoming events you can sign up for the mailing list at the